Welcome to Season 13 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name's Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawa people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. I'm so thrilled to be able to share this conversation that I had with Richard Gerber. It is really difficult to put into words the impact that Richard has had on my career. I'm forever grateful for his generosity, kindness and passion for our profession. For those that are new to Richard's work, he is one of the most influential experts on change and human leadership in the world and was described by the late Sir Ken Robinson as one of the clearest and most passionate voices for radical change, both in education and in business. In his compelling presentations and books, he takes his powerful message of hope and possibility to educators, business leaders and policymakers around the world. It is a message that has to be heard. Richard came to prominence when, as a head teacher, he turned around a failing school in the UK in under two years. Winning awards globally, Richard was labelled as the Walt Disney of the classroom by the UK media and went on to win a multitude of international awards, including a UNESCO award for leadership and innovation, Global Guru's top 30 thinkers and the National Teaching Awards Head Teacher of the Year. It was wonderful to speak to Richard, and I hope that you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Richard, welcome back. Thank you so much once again for talking to me on the podcast. It's wonderful to see your face and hear your voice. Oh, Matt, it's it's amazing to be here. I feel like I'm I'm a bookend. It's been an absolute joy to see the impact that your podcast has had on our profession globally. It's been amazing. And the people you've had on, I've got to be honest, I'm glad I went first because some of the people that have followed me would have been an incredibly difficult act to follow. (laughs) That's very kind. And I think I, uh, 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 we mentioned before we hit record that I'm just, I'm so grateful for the generosity of our profession. Um, I'm just this guy from Australia that, that I guess wanted to to start a conversation about some of these really significant issues in education and really, really grateful for people like yourself who, to be honest, could be doing other things, but decided to have a conversation and invest something back into our wonderful profession. And that's not just teachers in Australia, that's teachers all around the world. So from the bottom of my heart, um, I, I'm really, really grateful. And it's, it's really nice to hear a, a good Midlands accent as well. I've missed that. <laughs> yeah, my my family would hate you for that because I was born and raised in London, but there's oh, no. absolutely no doubt about it. Given I've lived here for over three decades in the middle of the UK, um, my family now do laugh at me when I go home because I, I have some weird pronunciations. That's for lovely. Sure. And Richard, quite possibly the most important com- uh, question for our conversation, what's your coffee order? And has it changed since I spoke <laughs> three years ago? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I just find it even more confusing these days when I walk into a coffee shop because I still drink my coffee in the way that I see the world. And that is incredibly simple. I have it black in a medium sized cup. Right. That's it. Um, But it strikes me that, you know, even compared to when we spoke last time, there are even more things you can have done to this cup of hot liquid. But no, just good, strong black coffee. And I have to be honest. Um, and I won't ramble on because I know it's not what people want to hear. I was lucky enough 
um, in the summer months in the summer months here um, to visit for work Costa Rica. And I right. went up to some of the coffee plantations in Costa Rica. And when you see how hard the process God. is to develop really good quality coffee, the last thing I would ever want to do is slather it in soya milk and caramel syrup. So straight, straight to the point, black, yeah. no mucking around. Absolutely. Just nice. how, how nature intended. Fantastic. And Richard, is there a book that you've read recently that has caused you to reconsider a few things in your life or put a few things into, into perspective for you? My goodness. Me. I mean, I'm, look, I'm, there are so many books that I read so that, that mean so much to me. Um, but there's one that I read a while back, actually, during COVID, a friend gave it to me. And it's a book that I keep coming back to, which is one of the most powerful. Actually, I picked it out here for you. It's called um, I Can Write, a memoir of a, silent, a child's silent soul emerging by a kid called Jonathan Bryan. Right. Um, okay. Now, Jonathan Bryan, when he wrote this book, was 12 years old and he has very severe cerebral palsy. Wow. And it is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever read because it's a joy full of love, hope, humor, um, you know, optimism. And this is from a boy who is kind of locked into a communication dungeon. Um, and it is, you know, one of those things that puts your life into perspective. And when you read something like this by a remarkable young author like Jonathan, what you realize is that almost any challenge is is, is surmountable. Wow. And we've lived through some tough times in the Jeez. last few years since we last spoke. We sure but have. I keep coming back to it and thinking to myself, if Jonathan can, then I can. Um, I so that. it's an immensely move. I, I, I urge anybody, particularly anyone who works with young people, to read it. So I Can Write by Jonathan Bryan. I love that. That's uh, another a book that's going to end up in my shopping cart. This uh, podcast is proving quite expensive, uh, <laughs> but uh, I will definitely check that out. That sounds wonderful. And what a what a great story of of um, overcoming limitations. That's really 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 inspirational. And Richard, final kind of rapid fire question: um, If you could have a dinner party with anybody, who would be there? I don't know. I asked you this way back in the beginning. Um, about yeah. three years ago but has that changed or who would you love to sit down with now look dinner? I mean I, I'm not going to name drop today because I think I did it three years ago um, <laughs> I, I'm very lucky in that I've managed to, to hang I, I hang with some of those people that yeah. were on my list but there are four there are four women I would love to get round the table together right love. because one of the things that and we'll we'll maybe come on to this as we go through um one of the things that I'm becoming passionate about as I enter the sort of latter phases of my career and useful life um, is this, this, we have got to construct a much more potent and powerful narrative between education, employability, childhood and adulthood and, and the world in which yeah. we're now um, existing. And there are four women that I've, um, three that I've met and, and one that I would love to meet who is still at the top of my wish list, who I would just love to get round the table because I just think their inputs would be, you know, be, it's like one of those things where you get people around a table and you just watch the magic happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so those four women, one is a woman called Minouche Shafiq. Minouche Shafiq um, is the director of the London School of Economics. She is a yeah. hardcore global economist. She was um, for many years, the um, deputy governor of the Bank of England. And, I think even now, if politics doesn't get in the way, 
she could well become the first woman to become governor of the Bank of England. So she okay. is, she's hardcore, right? Then, of, then there's um, a woman called Nancy Conrad. Now, Nancy's an amazing woman with an incredible backstory. Her husband was, um, was a guy called Pete Conrad, who was an astronaut. He was the third man to walk on the moon. He was the commander of Apollo 12. Um, he sadly died in a motorbike crash in the 90s. You know, it's very kind of filmic. You can imagine he would have been like this incredible heroic figure. Anyway, she's gone on. She was a teacher uh, many, many years ago. She's now in her 80s. And uh, she runs something called the Conrad Foundation, where she gets particularly young people from socially challenging communities across the US to pitch ideas to NASA. And they get whittled down and the competition ends in Houston at the NASA headquarters, Gosh, where wow. these kids actually pitch their ideas to, from, wow. and actually from all over the world. In fact, one I remember, young guy a few years ago, designed the idea of a, a gravity-defying space toilet. I mean, in your head, that is not something <laughs> I'd even imagine, right? No. And apparently NASA was so um, interested, they actually co-opted him to design it, right? So it's Gosh. now in spacecraft. So Nancy's amazing. Um, then there is um, the wife of my number one hero, although she is probably my number one hero, and that's Michelle Obama. I'd yeah. love to get Michelle around the table, if for no other reason than I would love to actually convince her to run for president. I just, you know, I mean, like I'd be sitting there going, I don't care what it takes, Michelle, we'll do whatever you need, but you've got to run to be president to save love the that. free to world. To save us. Um, yeah. And also, you know, her passion for education and young people is extraordinary. Um, she and her husband run a number of foundations. One is called the um, Advanced Leadership Foundation, which is, again, about trying to find young people in hard to reach communities who have the potential to change society. And so I would love to get her. And then the final one is actually an Aussie who um, I was lucky enough to meet for the first time just a few months ago, who is extraordinary her name I, I don't know if you you know her matt her name is jill hicks so jill was the last survivor pulled from the wreckage of the seven seven bombs in london oh, um she is truly she was so badly um injured that when she came round in hospital her name bracelet her identification bracelet simply said one unknown probably female um and she has devoted her life since she's gone through some really extraordinary periods of recovery. She's now living back in Australia, um, but she has devoted her life to working on peace, reconciliation and anti-radicalization. And one of the things that I will never forget is she turned around to me. She said, you know, I don't hate the suicide bomber that was sat one seat along from me on the bus in London that day. He was a 19 year old child who was groomed. I now have devoted my life to trying to ensure that other kids like him don't get, and you just think the level of love and mm -hmm. forgiveness and her passionate belief in humanity and human potential is so moved. So sorry, I know this was supposed to be a quick fire round. No, not at all. But, but there you go. That's my dinner party. <laughs> gosh, gosh, Richard, uh, th that's a, a, another list of people that I need to do a little bit of homework on. It's um, 
how inspirational that's that's a really wonderful dinner party and i i'd love to uh if you can ever organize that it'd be worth a trip over i think but um you're on <laughs> i'm just wondering just before we hit record you mentioned that you're you're kind of in a new stage of life at the moment with your kids your your kids are off they've sort of fled that not fled they've left the nest um <laughs> what's that been like for you i mean my kids are very young as you know and uh any dad wow. advice for when your kids finally leave wow it's an it, it's an extraordinary period, really. Um, you know, that you go through moments um, of thinking, okay, so what is my what is what is our purpose now? I'm very fortunate to 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 still be married. My wife and I are about to celebrate our thirty first wedding anniversary, Gosh. and you know, but but you go through these immense, incredible periods of your life, right? When you're first together in the flush of youth, the freedom, the opportunity, yeah, the discovery. Yeah. The, the opportunity, you know, you can just go out and do stuff without having to plan it. And, you know, I know Matt, I know Ken, for people that aren't watching this, but are listening, you need to see Matt's face right now. That is the face of a father we, with young children. We are not in that phase of life anymore. <laughs> uh, <you> yeah. <laughs> so I'm gloating. All right. But it's a very interesting period because your, your children leave home. Um, your instinct is still, your parental instinct never diminishes, you know? And, and one of the things I think you have to learn to come to terms with is the diminishing amount of control you have over your children not in terms of control control but yeah. in terms of control protection you yeah. know the fact that you can't protect them in the same way guide them in the same way and yeah. i think that's been a really interesting journey for us to get to a point where you realize that your job now is to be there to pick up the pieces, to support them. You can't stop them making mistakes. You can't really have an impact on the choices they make to an extent, you know, you have to trust them. Um, but also at the same time, incredible joy and pride. You know, both of my children have flown in their own directions. Um, they have both got relationships with wonderful partners who um, are great people in their own rights. They are good human beings. Right. And I suppose to an extent, you know, that is largely down to the impact hopefully I've had, but my wife certainly has had on, on those young people. Um, but yeah, it's that interesting thing about realizing you're no longer, you can't, you can't push and pull. You've just got to be there when they need you. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's the one side. The other side is, a rediscovery of your own youth because again you're suddenly able to do the stuff you know you're you're able to be more selfish again in the way you were as youngsters and and yeah. I think that's been an absolute joy those realizations where my wife and I have gone oh you want to go away for the weekend let's go away for the weekend right let's go out for dinner we don't need to get a sitter we don't need to do any of that stuff um so yeah, it, it's uh, it's been a very very interesting journey but I think the key is that thing about preparing yourself to become somebody who is a support rather than a guide. Yeah, I, I think that's really lovely. I know for me being a dad to two very little girls, when we first spoke, I had a two-year-old, now a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and my life was very different. But it has um, it has fundamentally changed me in ways that I never could have imagined. Um, I... I've started moving a lot slower. We just went for a walk down to the park and I found myself, instead of rushing my girls along with their scooters and their soccer balls and all this stuff that we have to take and we we never use, I felt myself walking slowly and 
just looking at flowers and I looked down and my little one was holding my hand and she was looking up smiling at me and I thought geez these are the these are the glory days these are the days that you look back on in 20 30 years time and go that was it like that is and and so for me it's this tension of not not missing that I even just had a conversation with my girls this morning uh, this afternoon actually just before they went to bed and said I'm trying to get better at not looking at my phone. Um, and I said to them, girls, can you help daddy with something? Can you tell me when I'm looking at my phone and remind me? And I, I think I'm pretty good, but it is a, uh, I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm trying to stop time um, or at least slow it down because it seems to be moving, moving way too I think, quick. You know, yeah. I think so much of what you say is so resonant to all of us and, and particularly yeah. to all of us as educators yeah. too. You know, when I, the first thing to say is, is I think now more than ever, what's really important amidst all of the complexity, uncertainty and exhaustion of what yeah. educators are living through right now is the simple joy of the natural world around us. Love you know, and, and actually, I often talk about my own memory as a young child, and I don't have many now um, as I get older. And But one profound memory is when I was um, seven years old, it was 1976. It was the hottest summer we've ever had in the UK. And remember our teacher should have been teaching us maths, but instead of teaching us maths after registration at the end of lunch, she said, should we go and sit in the park? And uh, excuse my dog, she's just wanting to join in. That's um, okay. And and she said, um, she said, should we go and sit in the park across the road? We were in an urban primary school. Um, and we went across the road because these were in the days before you had to fill out 15 different health and safety forms and all the rest yeah. of it. You could yeah. just go. I mean, it's miraculous. We're all still alive, frankly. But there you go. <laughs> we crossed the road. We went to the park. And it's one of the clearest memories of my entire life because we sat under a willow tree. Wow. Um, and she was re and it was warm. And I remember just like like it was yesterday talking wow. to you now. I remember the grass on the, my neck tickling me. I remember looking up at the fronds of the willow tree and I remember my teacher's voice. And I remember thinking to myself then as clear as day as a seven year old child, life will never get any better than this. Wow. And so I think that in a world that is so busy, so dominated now by anxiety and arguments about AI and technology, all of which are valid, you know, the one thing we need to remember to do as parents and as, as educators is look up to the sky, look down to the ground and mm -hmm. just enjoy the basic nature of the world around us because it costs nothing. Yet that connection can have such immense power for us and our children in terms of our in terms of our mental health and the, the the second thing i'd say in response to what you said yeah. is i think it's really important as educators i look back and i didn't get it right matt right they, yeah. i i remember when i left my headship and i was still very fortunate because i was a, a relatively young man and my children were still children when i let when i left my principal's position but I remember reflecting then and thinking to myself, I have given other people's children my best energy. Gosh. Um, and one of the things I urge educators now to reflect on, particularly educators who are lucky enough to have children and family of their own, is to make sure they save some of that energy for their own children, because we are a very, very selfless profession. Yeah. And we do it for the right reasons. But I urge people who have young children, who are planning to have young children, to make sure they save a little reservoir of their best energy for their own children. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, Richard. And and I um, as as you know, uh, we we have the most 
complicated job on earth. Um, and one of the things I've been trying to do a lot more is, um, and this is from the work of an incredible educator in Australia called Dr. Adam Frazier, and he talks about a thing called the third space. And so it's basically those transitional spaces between home and work. And I'll mm. um, I'll catch myself standing at the front door of our uh, little house. Uh, and for 30 seconds, I'll just say, okay, who do I want to show up? What do I want to show up like tonight to my kids? And how can I be mm. present? And that in itself being conscious about how we're present with our loved ones has really um, has really been transformative to me because you're right it is a job where we give everything and we invest so much and we care and we want to make a difference and um it, it's very easy I think to neglect neglect those that that matter most um, in our job and I was just thinking Richard obviously and I'll put links to all of your work um your amazing work and your website in the show notes and one of the books that was really transformative to me uh, was one of yours called Simple Thinking and it talked about how we can make our jobs as educators a little bit easier and remove some of that complexity from life and work and for those people that are not familiar with it would you mind maybe giving us a couple of key points on on why you wrote this book and why you think it's why you think it's so important in, a, in an increasingly sure. complex world for us teachers. And, and I think it's maybe even more pertinent now than when I wrote yeah. it, you know, as, I agree. as, as, uh, as I'm sure many will know, I no longer am on the front line of, of education. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it wasn't because I got sick or bored or didn't want to do it anymore, but opportunities opened up, which I think we talked about a little bit in our first podcast yeah. together um that, that were too good to to I had an adventure that I needed to go on but yeah. um my wife is a school principal but maybe more pertinently my daughter is now a sixth year in her sixth year of teaching in an Gosh. area of social debt in the UK um and I look at education now on the front line through her eyes mm. and you know it's funny because the reason I'm talking about this now was this was in my head when I wrote Simple Thinking, but I think it's become even more yeah. pertinent. So she is, and I know I sound like a biased father, she is an <laughs> outstanding young professional. She is yeah. an amazing yeah. teacher. You know, I've been privileged enough. She's invited me in to, to help with her class occasionally, oh, which wonderful. I've done, and, and that's been very special. Um, she is a remarkable educator, a really, she takes after her mom. She's an incredibly talented educator. Yet her mental health is and I know this is not unique to my daughter um because of her profession yeah. is not great right it really isn't great and it really isn't great mm. because she spends a lot of her time on social media not because she's just trying to be frivolous or trying to catch up with what the Kardashians are up to but because she uses it as a vehicle for professional development. And yeah. I know before we came online yeah. today, we talked very briefly about that. So she uses social media as a tool for professional development in a way that was never available to, yeah. to me yeah. uh, as, a, as a practicing teacher. And she sees all this stuff from all these so-called experts around the world who are flogging the next great idea. And you've got to do it this way. And this is the answer to this problem. And what I see is a young woman, a dedicated, brilliant young professional who most weekends talks about how she's just not good enough because oh. she doesn't understand some of this stuff. She doesn't do some of this stuff. And, and when That's I look back and I wrote Simple Thinking, which, which is quite a generic book, so it's not specific to educators, but I remember at the time talking to young teachers and reflecting both 
in when I was working training young teachers and as a school principal talking to my own staff. Even then, you know, the complexity of all the silver bullets that were fired at us, whether they were good stuff, bad stuff, ill research stuff, you know, everything in between, because it's still out there now. It's no it's no better quality. There's just yeah. I mean, there's good stuff, bad stuff, ill research stuff, badly yeah. twisted. Stuff. It's all still <laughs> there. Right. Um, right. But but I remember saying and and. This is, I think, where the essence of the book came from, because I, even then there were young teachers just tearing their hair out about trying to do a good job. And I used to say to them, look, I've got four questions for you, right? If you can respond to those four questions, then as far as I'm concerned, you're doing OK. One, do you know your children? Two, do you know what they need? Three, are you planning to that need? And four, how do you know it's working? Okay. And I kept going through that over and over and over and over again. And that got me really, even then, reflecting on why do we believe that mm. we have to make things complicated in order to make them feel of value? And I think yeah, I the essence that. of that came from, as a profession then, and it's I think in since we last spoke, it's ramped up to another level post-pandemic, Mm. The level of pressure educators are under means that we are always on the back foot trying to justify what we're doing and why we're doing it. And yeah. I think it's led us down a path to believe that we have to overcomplicate in order to prove A, we care, B, we're professional and, and, and C, we're doing the right job. Yeah. And, and so for me... I go back to that with educators now and I talk to my daughter about it all the time. Do you know your kids? Do you know what they need? Are you planning to that need? How do you know it's working? And then just okay. use the orbit of the noise around you. If there are bits there that help you meet that, then it's fine. If not, ignore it. Yeah, I love that. And Richard, it's a book that I go through and I read. Uh, so obviously our summer holidays at the, uh, at the beginning of the year in Australia. And it's my uh, mandated reading that I give myself, which is which is your book. And it, and it really does put things in perspective. And I love that you talked about just how complex it is now, because it seems to be getting um, it seems to be getting more and more complicated. I don't know what this what the, the structure is like over in the UK, but in Australia, we we tend to follow what you're doing in the United Kingdom. And it's it's a lot of work and it has radically changed since. I first started in my profession. And on that, Richard, do you think like, obviously you you led a, a school called the Grain School for a number of years, and we talked about this in uh, podcast episode number one. Do you think the role of the leader has changed since you were in that position? And and, and what can we do to to better equip school leaders to, to, to do their job? Because I think it's the hardest job in the world. I, I think it's almost impossible right now. Um, I mean, to give you an example, a real me a real world example and again I, I know i mentioned it so my wife's a school principal she's been a school principal for 17 years right um so she has lived through all of the difficult different whip political whims and policies that our country have lived through over those two decades as a principal before that as a vice principal and before yeah. that as a teacher you know yeah. she's been teaching she's been teaching since 1990 so she has seen it all right and what's to give you so there she is hugely experienced brilliantly skilled very successful and she came home this week white as a sheet because on top of everything else that that our leaders and teachers are juggling with post-pandemic um policy all the rest of it 
drain on public resource. Her kitchens were condemned because the roof was rotten, right? So, you know, that's what, that's the level sometimes that people outside of education don't understand. So yeah. not only is she trying to run her school, lead her community, make sure every child's getting the best they can, looking after the mental health and professional development of her colleagues, then that's thrown at her, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and yeah, undeniably, in terms of mental health issues post-pandemic, I, I, I can't even imagine the difference in a school now compared to pre-pandemic is beyond measure. I, I don't know if I could even lead a school today. Gosh. But the biggest, and that I suppose sums for me what I think is the biggest difference. When I was a school principal, I was privileged to be a school principal in what I describe as a relatively golden era because mm. we were trusted as a profession. We had professional integrity. We were encouraged to innovate for our community, not in some, you know, sometimes you hear in the media that it was some kind of anarchic free way to, it wasn't. We weren't yeah. living in the bloody 60s, right? We were living yeah. in an era where there was deep accountability and also as professionals, we knew we had a profound responsibility to do the right thing for our kids in our community. But there was opportunity to innovate, which meant there was opportunity to lead. Because for me, leadership actually is about empowerment. It's about empowering your community. It's about finding the talent in your community, wherever it may lie, and lifting those people up to help find the solutions and opportunities available to you, finding the very best. It's yeah. sometimes about trusting our instincts. And I think, again, tragically, not just in education, but in, in so many walks of our lives, we have been told that our instincts are flight of fancy and they are irresponsible. Yet the truth about our instincts is they are born out of our experiences. Yeah. So when you get to a position of leadership in education, those instincts aren't based on nothing they're based on all the years of professional craft development and experience you've gone through to get to the position okay. you've got to right so i think leadership was far more about leadership when i was a school principal we had opportunity to really build vision values culture i think for all kinds of reasons and it isn't because a comment on the quality of leaders in our schools now it's a comment on the climate in which they exist so much of the time school leaders now have have is put into managing, managing systems, managing structures, managing policy, managing budgets, managing crises around mental health and community issues. Right. So much of that now is around management. It's leaving our school leaders exhausted, confused. And, and actually, I think for me. That is the greatest challenge in our school system. I don't think it's been helped, particularly in English education, because we have a government who have believed that the future of education lies in making everything we do more efficient, rather than ever taking a step back and going, yeah, OK, we get that, right? If, if what we have to do is just make the system more efficient, yeah. we can yeah. do that. But actually... Are we questioning whether the system itself needs transformation? And in yeah. a way, that to me is where I hope leadership finds the time and energy to go again. And I'm not condemning any of those movements, right? Because while schools are being measured in the same way we've always been measured, 
and it's still about purely almost raw data on test scores, how we perform internationally in PISA, mm. which is where most of our international policy comes from. I don't blame a single educator for, for focusing in on how do we do what we've always done more efficiently. Oh, but again, for me, that's, that's management. And what I want is to free our profession up to use their instincts, to use their professional integrity, to use their extraordinary knowledge and experience, and to be able to be visionary, to look at their own cultures and develop cultures in the context of their communities, and to lead again. I love that. That's so inspiring. I'm getting uh, uh, goosebumps all the way over here in the in the southern hemisphere. And, and it's a shame that people aren't watching this this video because it's so lovely to see after all of your years of experience in education, you just light up when you talk about the potential of schools and the potential of young people. And you are the uh, eternal optimist. Uh, every time I'm feeling, uh, every time I'm feeling like uh, the waves are a little bit too too much to handle, I, I switch on a, a podcast episode from you or a YouTube video or something, or pick up your book because. There, there has to be a way forward, doesn't there? And your voice, I think, in this in our industry is is so important now, um, as it always has been. But uh, what do you think we need to do? Um, because I have never been more passionate about the about the uh, the potential of public education. I've got one child in the system, so to speak, and another one about to enter. And I I'm pretty optimistic, but. I kind of don't know what to do with that optimism, optimism because it's it's hard. So any advice on what we should be doing and focusing on? Well, the first thing, Matt, is don't beat yourself up. But because simply by having the courage to start this podcast, you are having a huge impact. My mentor, who has sadly died since we last spoke to each other, you know, my great friend, my mentor, my inspiration, Sir Ken Robinson, mm. um, used to say to me, you know, Richard, revolutions don't start on a Thursday afternoon at two o'clock when somebody fires the gun and everybody goes, right? Yeah. Revolutions and the French Revolution, for example, started in the coffee shops of France, where people gathered in small numbers to share ideas, not just to share what was wrong with their world, but actually to share ideas on how they could improve it. And, and then those revolutionaries galvanize one another to just take simple steps, to try things, to, and then to share that with each other, their triumphs, their failings, their failures. And I think as a profession, what we have to do is to use vehicles like podcasts and social media in the right way, and just human interaction to come together, to collaborate, to be collegiate, to share ideas, to share experiences honestly with one another. You know, by that, I mean, not just to have the generosity to share success, but to have the confidence to share the failings and moments that haven't gone right. Because, mm. you know, one of the universal truths, I think we all know as educators, but I think it's pertinent, not just to our children, but to us, is you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. So that that honesty, that generosity to share, to share ideas and, and platforms like this podcast are so immensely powerful for that, to galvanize one another, to not believe that change in education has to be grandiose, that we have to wait for policy or policy level decisions or a transformation of the way we assess and monitor um, performance of our young people. You know, to actually just 
to try stuff, to innovate in a small way, small steps in our classrooms with our students. Trust your instincts and then share those experiences. I love that. Because I actually think what's been really tragic, and again, we said this before we came on, on air today, over the last decade, and, and I think it's certainly amplified because of social media in that period, we have always been a generous profession. We have always come together when we've needed to, to make a difference for our mm -hmm. children. Yet in so many ways over the last decade, what I've seen is a small number of voices almost deliberately tried to create division within our profession to set us up as polar opposites. You know, something that I remember seeing when I was a young teacher 30 years ago is being has been resurrected. You know, some false dichotomy, some false argument between traditionalists and progressives. And, you know, the truth is, none of us came into education because we wanted to screw up kids' lives. All of us came into education, wherever we sit in the spectrum of the belief of how the system should run, because we want to make a difference to the lives of young people, yeah. which means we have way more in common than that which divides us, yeah. um, to, coin, to coin a phrase. And, and so for me, what I want to see us do is stop trying to find division, to stop trying to pick holes in each other's arguments, to deliberately polarise, right? To actually come together, not in some public forum, to try yeah. and win egos and arguments, and actually say, look, what do we want our kids to look like as human beings? What do they need to look like as human beings in order to not just survive, but thrive the tumult and challenge of what is going to be a deeply yeah. changeable and uncertain future? And yeah. how can we use all of our wit, wisdom, expertise, knowledge and find a galvanizing force? Because there's good in all the beliefs out there, right? There's good in all the research and expertise out there and all the passion out there. But what defines what we do is our ability to translate challenging concepts to our young people to change the course of their yeah. lives. And that's what we've got to come together and do. So let's stop burning up energy arguing with each other and realize that we have a common challenge and we have a common belief and goal. And let's find a way to use all of that force and energy. Because if we do that as a profession, if we do that as a community, we can create a vision and set of values that the public and therefore politicians will have no opportunity but to support. I love that, Richard. That is a, a podcast series just in itself. I think your uh, your, your points, um, it's it's... It's really important, and I agree that there seems to be so much division, not just politically, but in terms of education space. And I think it's about time we came together and discussed some of those common common goals and those significant um, uh, kind of our hopes and our dreams again for this education system. And I, one of the things I have, uh, I love doing uh, each week is re refreshing my podcast feed to see if your podcast uh, has a new episode. So the Learning Bridge. Tell me about that. And what has your experience been like uh, running a podcast? Well, um, the first thing is I resisted it for a very long time. I mean, a, a friend of mine is a producer, podcast producer in the States, and he's been nagging me for a long time to do my own mm. series. And I've you know, been procrastinating yeah. for one reason or another. Um, and, and actually, in the end, I just gave in because I thought, no, he's right. And, and 
he, he said to me, look, why don't you, you've talked for years about, and I've mentioned it already on, on our, our chat today. Um, you've talked for years about trying to find a way to create a much stronger narrative between education and employability, between childhood and adulthood. And rather than always looking at the just the, the, the direct environs of education to try and find a way to help educators yeah. hear new voices, different yeah. voices, fresh opinions. Right. And so when he said that, that was the trigger. And I thought, well, I've got an address book with people in it who are just amazing. No. Um, right. So what we what I did was I said, look, we'll do eight episodes. We'll release them every two weeks. And we'll see how they go. And if they go well, we'll do more, right? So we've we've got the eight, as, as you guys would call it, in the can. Um, we're releasing them every two weeks. I think we're up to episode three now. And what I've done is just found people that I, over the last 20 or 30 years, certainly the last two decades since I've been out of frontline education, have met along the way who I've just thought to myself, my God, I wish other educators could hear their opinions because they're amazing, right? They're catalysts, yeah. they're, they're really supportive, they're not judgmental. It's not about saying to educators, oh, you people don't know what you're doing. It's about hearing the fresh voices from outside okay. that I think can stimulate our thinking. And so we've had some amazing people. We've had so far two of the entertainment industries just the most influential people, a married couple called David and Carrie Grant, yeah. who um, are singing coaches as well as being stars in their own way back in the day. David had number one hits. Carrie was on yeah. top of the pops and the Eurovision Song Contest entrant. They've they've coached Take That, for example. Um, but, you know, they also, what was really interesting in our episode, they have four neurodivergent children of their own, three natural born and one adoptive. Yeah, wow. And and the podcast really was talking about that, you know, their neurodivergent family, or as Carrie calls it, which is the greatest term <laughs> I've ever heard. She calls them neurospicy. And I love that. Her family is neurospicy. And she recently found, she was diagnosed recently herself, actually, as autistic. So brilliant. Then we had um, Edu Rubio, who is a Premier yeah. League football coach, talking about elite performance and how you work with young people to help them realise their potential and what it means to be elite, which, again, I hope would resonate for educators. And um, the latest episode is with an amazing woman who comes from a really challenging working class background in the UK, broke through a massive glass ceiling to become a hugely successful lawyer and is now standing for parliament at the age of 38. And I think she is going to one day be prime minister. So I'm glad I snagged her now. <laughs> um, and then we've got amazing episodes to come, including with one of the people I want at my dinner party, Jill Hicks. So I've done an right. episode with Jill and I want I urge people, even if they don't subscribe to the series, to listen out for that one, because the way she talks about love, reconciliation and radicalization is truly ground shattering. Wow. Um, and then other episodes, one with a guy who has been a senior advisor to three U.S. presidents, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and now Joe Biden. Um, and he's talking about politics and how you convince politicians to make the right decisions and all that kind of stuff. An episode with a guy called Dwayne Chambers, who is a former Olympic gold medal winning 100 meter sprinter. 
um, who, when he was 19 years old and right towards the top of his career, was found to be taking performance-enhancing drugs. Gosh. And he talks with unbelievable candid honesty about that journey and the mistakes he's made and the things he'd wish he'd known and now how he works with young athletes to make sure they avoid those pitfalls. So, yeah, it's it's been magical, Matt. And like you said to me before we came on, whether people listen or not is one thing, and I really hope they do. But having those conversations with such extraordinary people yeah. is both a privilege and life-changing for me. So yeah. at that level, I am so glad that Ross, the producer, convinced me to do it. And I kind of hope we get enough traction for me to do some more episodes because I've got some fab new people I want to introduce the world to. Yeah. I love that, Richard. And I um, I think I read somewhere that uh, most podcasts only survive, I think it's either six or eight episodes. And so what I did is I I think I pre-recorded 10 episodes uh, when I first started uh, the podcast. And I, um, it is it has been a wonderful journey. And, and I love one of the many things I love um, uh, about the Learning Bridge podcast is it does just that. It builds bridges between uh, different industries from educators to parliamentarians to incredible thinkers and it reminds us that there are so many things that unite us as individuals and so many shared challenges I think your uh if uh these uh, three episodes that you've released are anything to go by I think the next are going to be really exceptional I think you should be should be really proud of yourselves and um it's really wonderful to hear and even just to have your um, and I think for me, one of the, the, the greatest privileges is I've, I've seen kind of how um, it's made me a better listener, I think, um, you know, when you, you're hearing people's stories, it's a good reminder to, you know, kind of keep your mouth shut and just listen. And I think people are really fascinating and really wonderful people. And um, yeah, it's really lovely to see you starting on that journey and who knows where it's going to go. It's really beautiful. Yeah. I'm hoping one day I get Michelle Obama on. That'll be the moment I'll drop the mic and leave the building, Matt. You're done. You're, that, 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 would be, that would be exceptional. Richard, do you think this, um, do you think kind of the professional learning space is changing? I mean, you've obviously got a, a great podcast. You've got LinkedIn courses, I think. Uh, they're smart thinking, overcoming complexity and developing mental toughness. And it seems like this sort of on-demand um, differentiated professional model um, of learning for teachers seems to stay. It would would you agree with that? Have you seen a bit of a, a shift in that landscape? Massive, massive. Um, you know, and and again, so many like so many things, things have been accelerated by the pandemic, yeah. good and bad. Right? It's been an extraordinary catalyst, not just for the bad, but for good stuff too. Um, you know, the the LinkedIn learning thing was amazing because when they approached me to do my LinkedIn learning courses, it was early 2019. Wow. So before the the shadow of the pandemic was yeah, even wow. thing. Um, and we ended up recording the courses. I record I should have recorded them at their headquarters in California, but yeah. because by the time we got round to it, that we were in lockdown and the pandemic was in full flow. And I recorded them in in my office here at home. Um which was which was an experience in itself. But <laughs> what was really interesting was I hadn't really online learning, those kind of learning courses, whether it's uh, LinkedIn learning or any of the other, because there are multitudes of platforms now that offer uh, masterclasses, workshops, you know, courses. Um, I hadn't would have never really been in my in my orbit. And um, 
the more I got to see it, the more I realized how incredibly powerful it was. I think LinkedIn Learning now has something like 600 million subscribers right. around right. the world. Um, and so what it's done is democratize education in a yeah. way that we could never have dreamed of, right? I mean, there are still, sadly, tragically, too many millions of people around the world because of technological problems who still can't get access to any form of that education. But it has democratized learning and education. And, and it allows people to pursue personal interest in a way that I don't think we've ever been able to do before yeah. and that on-demand opportunity for personal professional development is immense um i i can only see it growing the one thing i would say on the counter to that is when i look back at my own professional development journey i have learned as much from the impromptu conversations and meetings with people um not just in education but from all spheres of life the reason for the learning bridge um and, and what I urge people to do is to remember that learning isn't always formal and it mm. isn't something that is that. just on demand or available through technology, yeah. but to keep yeah. their eyes, ears and hearts open. Because the truth is every minute of every day and every unique interaction, if you take it right and process it properly, will lead to a moment that will mean you learn and develop and evolve and move forward yeah. and so the only caveat i have is don't believe that and we know this as educators right that learning is always formal and it will always be available and only be available online it's why by the way i think that that teaching and teachers should never feel threatened by technology and i remember a conversation i had years ago yeah wow. with eric schmidt who at the time was the executive chairman of Google. This is a long time ago now, probably a decade ago. And I said to him then, I said, do you ever see a time, Eric, where technology will replace the teacher? And his answer was immediate and unequivocal. He went, no, never. And I said, can you talk me through that? You're the chairman, chief executive of the biggest tech company at the time in the world. He said, that's easy, Richard. Education has always been and will always be at its heart about human development. And in order to develop human beings, you'll always need high levels of human interaction. Technology is an incredible catalyst. It's an incredible tool. But education is a human experience. I and, I, and so I think, yes, it's evolving and changing, but I don't think we should be scared of it. And I think we need to make sure that we don't become so overawed by its newness, its flashiness, what it can do. And to remember that those simple human interactions will always be the root of great education yeah. and learning. I love that. It, it's so profound. And, and I love that that education has always been, has always had that human element. And it's about how we interact with each other. And I, and I think for me, that's why I called this podcast, The Art of Teaching, because I, I see so many educators, I have the privilege of being in, of working with an incredible team and seeing how they craft this incredible, sorry, how they engage with their class and how they are just incredible um, and skilled practitioners and it's it will always have that human element I, I love that I love your optimism it's phenomenal and Richard I was just wondering um in terms of one of your LinkedIn courses is about developing mental toughness what would what did running the London Marathon teach you about mental toughness <laughs> oh my goodness me Do you know what it's, it's my dream it was... to run, run the London Marathon. oh boy I mean, so it, take everyone back. It was 2008 <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I was about to become 40. 
Um, and you know those moments, those profound moments in your life where particularly at a big decade, right? Yes. Yeah. And um my my friend and then manager, um, Brendan, approached me. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> And he said, um, look, Richard, because he's very involved in um, hospice charities, yeah. very involved, has been all of his adult life. And he said the uh, Help the Hospices, which is a charity in the UK, had asked him to put together a team to run the London Marathon for charity. And he said, this is true. <laughs> he said, Rich, I've tried everyone I know and I've got most of a team together. You're the last person. I need one more. And, and I did, wasn't sure I was going to ask you, but would you do it? Right. Which is like a double edged sword. It's yeah. not really a compliment, is it? It's like you are yeah. the last person on my list. You are the last chocolate in the box that nobody wants. Um, and he said, would you do it? And he hit me at the right moment because I was about to be 40. Now, I have never been an athlete. I've always been I've always had problems with my weight, you know, yo-yoing and some days I'm, it's water retention. Some days I'm big, some days I'm small. Um, but I've never been, and I hated running as a kid. Um, and, but I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and I remember being terrified, absolutely terrified. You know, that the minute you get the entry form through and they start, yeah. you know, it's real. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, luckily I had a year and I started reading into it and I started walking a mile or two and then jogging a mile or two. Oh my God. Um, and I think what it really taught me was because the process was extraordinary. There were moments of immense ups, immense, immense yeah. downs, yeah. injuries. I've never actually been able to run since because I damaged my knees in that whole process, but it's an experience yeah. I would never swap for the world because yeah. running the London marathon or jogging it or jogging, walking, probably more accurate, just so everybody knows I was beaten by a giant version of the donkey from Shrek and also an eight foot tall um, nurse in a you know, nurse's costume running for the NHS. So people I need to put, I was not, you know, some Olympian runner, but what it taught me Love was that. just at the moment you think that's it. I can't do this. Um, and I think what drove me was by then knowing that I had raised, I was raising money for a profoundly important charity that, you know, then it was about, come on, just take one more step, run another 10 meters, run another 50 meters, come on, run another half mile. Um, and I, I think for me, what it taught me about mental toughness was to break stuff down from what you see as the scale of the mountain. Because when I started, all I could see was 26.3 miles or whatever it was. And I thought, I can't even run 26.3 yards, let alone 26.3 miles. And then you break it down. And of course, what that does is every step, every yard, actually galvanizes your confidence to take the next one and so for me the metaphor is exactly that mental toughness isn't big it's not strong on the linkedin course i talk about it isn't some arnold schwarzenegger-esque you know thing it's it's just having finding the courage to take the next step and then celebrating that step yeah and that galvanizes you to take another one and another one and another one so in short that for me is how the two things really interrelate do you think you would, uh, would you ever sign up for another one? If my knees would ever have let me, I would have done. I yeah. don't think I, I genuinely, I, yeah. because I did damage my, because I'm a big guy 
And it wasn't the marathon itself. It was the year training up to it. You know, I was running 30, 40 miles a week in the end as we prepared towards the marathon. Yeah. And actually, when I look back on it, it, it genuinely, it was my knees. Um, I would definitely sign up to take on another challenge that physically I could do without yeah. further damaging myself. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and I hope in in, in the, 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 you know, the 14 or 15 years, 14 years since, because it was the 2009 marathon. I've kind of used that experience to just take those steps in areas yeah. where you think I'm really scared, but just take one step. Yeah. I, I had the privilege of um, uh, running Sydney marathon a number of times. Wow. And um, I, uh, I was actually down to run this year and uh, I didn't stretch accordingly. And the night before I pulled a muscle in my, in my back, but that's okay. Um, I was fit and I was <laughs> considering the fact that I didn't run the marathon. I felt great the day after it, uh, but it, it never, um, it never gets easier. It really doesn't. Um, and, and I think uh, to put it into context, the first time I run, I, I thought it was in probably about 2008, um, I remember laughing at a lady dressed as SpongeBob at the start line, and I think she beat me by an hour. Uh, and so it's it's that great sort of um, it's this great unifier. So you can be running with people that are on exorbitant salaries or people that are just not. And it's lovely to see the, all these people come together for this common goal. But it's the hardest thing in the world, and it's really hard to explain that to someone unless they've been through it and so i i commend anyone that even signs up um and however you get to the end however you shuffle however you crawl it doesn't matter you finished it and i think you should be really proud of yourself um yeah it's really wonderful but so many lessons i, I think from running long distance and I, and I couldn't agree more taking that next step um keeping uh keeping on when it's really difficult and you don't want to and I know for us, the Sydney Marathon's in September, and so we have to train. We call it winter in Australia. It's really not. You just have to put on a a, a loose-knit jumper. Um, but you uh, you do have to train in the cold and the dark, and it's hard. Yeah. And so I think the lessons I've learned from that are um, really do serve me well in other areas of my life. Um, Richard, I want to be respectful of your time, so I just have a few more questions. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on how we can learn to love change because change seems inevitable. The world continues to be moving at a faster and faster pace. So what can we do as educators and as leaders to, to learn to love change and embrace it a little bit more? I think, you know, like so much of my work, I keep referring back to um, so much of my stimulation and thinking comes from observing young children evolve and yeah. develop right yeah and and the first thing to say is for me uh, the more i think about it the more i think learning and change are almost inextricably linked yeah um you go back to something i said earlier in the pod you know you learn nothing new by getting something right and it's always fascinated me the speed and rate at which young people learn and i'm talking about preschoolers and and you know kindergarten age kids you, know, you think 
most of those young people, most of them, learn to walk, talk, they learn to understand vocal intonation, facial expression, body mm -hmm. language, they learn to make sense of the sensory world around them. If they're born into multilingual homes, they learn to speak every language spoken in that home environment. We all know to our own cost, they learn to negotiate, they learn to um, they learn to control us, um, you know, manipulate and all those yeah. things. And all of that happens in the first five years of life, right? And the other thing is that particularly in those very early phases, there are no two days that are the same. Every mm -hmm. single day is different. Yet as we get older, we become more obsessed with controlling our environments. We become nervous about stepping outside of our routines and comfort zones. You know, there's no accident when you look at the human learning graph, and it, there are all kinds of reasons why, you know, that our, our rate at learning decreases and degenerates the older we become. And so to me, one of the fascinations has always been if only we could tip the scales back a little bit in terms yeah. of our yeah. ability to learn, we could we could tip the scales back a little bit in terms of our ability to embrace change. And I think the truth is this. We are not scared of change in itself. We are scared of the things we associate with change. Right. So often in our worlds and particularly in education, Change doesn't mean change to most of us. It means another new initiative fired on top of all the other initiatives we've been dealing with. So when we hear change, what we actually hear is, so we're going to have to work harder. That's the first thing. The second thing is so much of the change we experience as adults is reactive. Yeah. So we don't change until we have to. So the best example I can give at the moment is everybody in the world, 2023 was the year the world seemed to panic about AI, right? And in education, it wasn't AI per se we were panicking about, it was chat GPT that was the catalyst for that, right? And suddenly we're all going, oh my God, AI, oh, what are we gonna do? It's gonna, the world's gonna end as we know it, right? Now, the interesting thing is that a decade ago, I was talking to a man called Nolan Bushnell, who was the founder of Atari. Um, wow. And his, as well as founding Atari, his other claim to fame was he was the first person to employ both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the, the co-founders of Apple, right? Amazing. So, and I, a decade ago, I said, what are you putting your energy and time into? He said, AI, 10 years ago. He said, and if we're not talking about AI now, by the time we do, it'll be too late and everyone will be in panic. And what happened in 2023? Exactly that, right? So, we spend so much of our time reacting to stuff. The change is always exhausting physically and emotionally. You know, COVID is the great exemplar of that. And I'm not saying that was avoidable. Why were we so exhausted? Because we had to spend so long running just to keep up, paddling to keep our heads above water for us, our communities, our schools, our personal lives. And so the, the, the thing to, re, to, to do is to recalibrate and to say, it isn't change I'm afraid of. It's the experience I've had of change mostly in my adult life. Right. So just by putting one foot in another, by trying something different in a restaurant, reading a book by an author you've never read before or in a genre you didn't think you'd like, watching a TV program that on the surface just doesn't look like your cup of tea, right? All of those things are change and they're learning. And when the more you do it and you feel in control of it, the more you do it where you feel like you're on the front foot, the more you do it where it doesn't feel more of on top of, and actually it becomes evolutionary, mm -hmm. the more adjusted to change we can become. So what I urge people to think about on that simple level is when they have a reflex or reaction 
to change. The first thing to ask is, is it change itself or is it the reasons why and the causes of that change? Because if you can start to unpick that in its own subtle way, you start to take ownership of the situation more, which means you feel more in control, which actually means it feels less daunting. Yeah. I love that, Richard. There's there's so much, like I said, so much in that. And I think that that idea of taking that one step, taking the next step, or as my girls love to say, to do the next right thing, which I think is a quote from Frozen, um, I think is really, really important. And Richard, I don't know how on earth you you find the time to to travel the world and inspire educators and write books and launch a podcast and have a family, but somehow you've managed to uh, to write a kid's book. Um, <laughs> tell me about that. Um, and wow, so, I, like I said, I thought I was busy. I don't know how you do it. So I um, go all the way back. When I was at university, when I went to college, um, and as people can hear a lot more about that on our first chat on episode one, um, one of the things I'd always wanted to do was write. And, and at the time, it wasn't nonfiction. It wasn't the kind of books I ended up writing. I'd always wanted to write a, um, a story, yeah. you know, yeah. a, a novel or a, a, a book. Then when I became an educator and read the stories that to my kids in class, and I love yeah. that, but it's one of the things I miss most about being a primary school teacher is reading to my kids yeah. um, in class and doing all the... I mean, I did it at home with my own children, but they were never quite as complimentary as the kids that I taught. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I used to love doing that and, and reading those children's stories and, and realizing the incredible artistry and craft of those things. Yeah. And it got to a point in my life a few years ago where I was privileged enough to be asked to become president of the School Library Association in the UK, which is a kind of honorary role. And my job is to advocate for school libraries and school librarians and the importance of really good quality libraries and librarians and books. And the chief executive said, because we talked long and hard about all sorts of things. She said, now, if you're going to write a children's book, Richard, now is the time to write that children's book. Come on, you're president of the School Library Association. Do it now. Good point. And I thought, no, she's right. Um, and I've had an idea brewing in my head, um, really motivated by the fact that a number of years ago, we adopted a Romanian rescue dog who people will have heard on this podcast, yes. no doubt already. Yes. Um, and she had had a really... We don't know a lot about her background, except that we know that when she was a pup, her mother was shot in front of her on the streets of Romania. Um, and that had always fascinated me, as well as obviously all the emotional feels that gives you about the importance of the little creature you're taking into your world. And then what had happened was I started to play with that idea and thought, because then what started to happen was in, in other news, in the bigger world, I started to become really worried about the dialogue uh, politically around refugees and, and you know, people from back and, and the intolerance and the divide and the polarization and the popular, you know, the populism that we've seen explode around that whole narrative. Um, and I thought, actually, there's a book here. And so I started writing the book, which is called Martyr. Um, about a little Romy rescue dog who um, grows up on the streets of Romania, whose mother is shot in front of her, who manages to get rescued, finds herself in a middle-class home in the UK where other local dogs stick their nose in the air and treat her like a dirty foreigner because she's come from Gosh. Romania. Gosh. And the end of the story, which I won't give all of it away, 
is that she rescues one of those dogs who finds themselves snared up in um, some domestic rubbish because she, when she was on the streets of Romania, was taught how to escape a snare. Um, and so it's really a, a parable about how okay. every creature has a purpose and a, you know, and they value and all the rest of it. Anyway, so I wrote the book. We're currently looking for the right publisher. So if anyone out there knows a good children's publisher, let me know. Because what I want to do is donate all of the royalties that I would earn from that book to the School Library Association, which is a charity, to leave a kind of legacy of my time as their president that hopefully will last in perpetuity, that will add just a, a little bit of funding to their coffers to, to make, make the case for the importance of our libraries. I love that. Richard, I, I, I can't wait to, um, I can't wait to read it. And what a wonderful, um, what a wonderful legacy to, to leave. I, I've thought um, many, for many years about writing a book for my kids, like things that I wish I could tell them as they grow up and, uh, You've inspired me to just take the next step in that process. So thank you so much. And um, Richard, a final question for, for those educators out there that are listening to our conversation. What advice would you give them about, um, about the impact that they can have in their classrooms? Oh, my Lord. Um, be you. Be yourself. Don't be intimidated by what you see and hear, I refer back to my conversation about my daughter as a young teacher. Yeah. Bring your passion every day, bring your commitment every day, trust your instincts about what each of your children need and remember at the heart of great teaching, which I believe has always been the same and always will be the same, is the ability, your, your psychological, you know, your emotional intelligence, your ability to build relationships with the young people. Yeah. Pardon me, you teach. Remember to just every day ask yourself those four questions. Do I know my kids? Do I know what they need? Am I planning to that need? How do I know it's working? But more than anything, just be you and know that there is no such thing as the perfect teacher or the perfect lesson. And actually being human is really, really important. I say this to educators and I say it to leaders and managers across every spectrum. If you come across as too perfect to the people you lead, manage or teach, you come across as inaccessible. The vulnerability of your humanity, the fact you are fallible are things that make young people and the people you lead and manage and educate um, relate to you. Do not believe that you need to be infallible. Be you, be human, be organic. I love that, Richard. What a wonderful place to conclude our conversation. It's It's been a real joy to get to connect with you um, after almost three or over three years. Um, and I'm so grateful for your work um, and also just your ongoing generosity, not only to me, um, but also to countless educators around the world. I'm, I'm truly grateful that you'd give up your Saturday morning to have a conversation with me. Uh, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Oh, Matt, honestly, it's a sh it's a real honor and privilege for me. Thank you for helping to get my voice heard. And I hope a little bit of what we've talked about will make a difference, even just to one educator today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast episode today. 
It's a privilege to get to share these conversations with you and continue to invest into our incredible profession. If you have a few moments, please do me a favour and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify or through whichever platform you're listening today. If you wouldn't mind also hitting the subscribe button and sharing it with your networks, it would really help to get the word out to as many educators as possible. There are different ways to connect in the notes below, including links to the website, the Facebook group, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen. It means the world. Thank you.